Good evening. Um, this talk is a bit of an innovation for me because normally my job is very simple. I just show lots of pretty pictures that were, you know, across the whole course of the exhibition, tell you more or less what happened in the show, and that's more or less job done. But this, for this talk, because, you know, this is obviously a 19th century um, forum, I'm focusing just on the early part of the exhibition. Um, and on the sort of problems and opportunities of telling the stories of the interactions between um, arts and um, diverse sexualities and gender identities. Um, and in that context, the word queer in the exhibition's title is, I think, the sort of key word here. Um, the show starts in 1861, which is the end of the death penalty for sodomy, as I'm sure you all know, um, and it runs through to 1967, which is the sort of year of partial decriminalisation. Um, but across that period, there's huge shifts in, uh, in the arts, in society, in how gender, identity and sexuality are perceived and um, how they are explored in the visual arts. And again, as I'm sure you're all aware, in the early period where the exhibition opens, um, we're in a very different world. There's very few words for same-sex desire and gender identity. The, the terms that we use today don't exist yet. Um, and for this reason, it was very important to us for this period to be incredibly precise about the words that we're using for the different people in the show rather than sort of imposing back terms like gay, lesbian, trans, bisexual. We very much tried to treat each life and each experience on its own terms. And to not shy away from presenting some of the ambiguities, uncertainties, contradictions, and things that we simply don't know um, about the figures in the exhibition. Um, so with those caveats, and um, I, I'll begin. And already, I can't get my first slide. But, uh, there we go. <coughs> In a story that is told to Charles Ricketts' biographer, um, the writer John Addington Simmons visits Ricketts and Shannon at home in the Vale. Um, John Addington Simmons who is very interested in same-sex desire in this period, um, asks what Ricketts describes as a series of impertinent questions. Um, and it culminates in Ricketts throwing him out of the house. On the stairs, Addington Simmons turns and says, but you are, aren't you? You do, don't you? And Ricketts makes no reply. Now, lots of scholars have taken that silence as signs of a sort of the old and the new order interacting. The ambivalent, fluid world of ambiguous desires which Ricketts and Shannon operate in, and the new, the, the advent of a sort of modern world coming in the form of John Addington Simmons' impertinent questions. Um, Ricketts and Shannon's relationship is difficult to pin down, to say the least. Um, they live together, it's clearly a very loving relationship, um, they work together, um, they collect art together, um, they destroy quite a lot of their papers in the wake of the Oscar Wilde trial. Um, but 
I think that encounter encapsulates something about you know, these ambiguities that I'm talking about. We don't know whether they ended up sort of going to bed together, whether they had sex together. Um, nor do we necessarily need to know, I think. I mean, what we do know is that this is a loving and enduring relationship. It's a relationship about which their friends, John Anning and Simmons for one, um, speculate wildly. There's lots of rumours within their own time, lots of queer interpretations of that relationship. Um, and I think that that is a kind of very helpful, um, in a nutshell, sort of summary of kind of ways of thinking about this history. Um, that it often is ambiguous, there often are things that we don't know, but that shouldn't um, inhibit us from looking at what, what is there. Interestingly, they are also depicted together in an enormous sequence of portraits, including this, which is one of my favourites, um, which is by Edmund de Lac, um, depicting them wearing the robes of Cistercian monks, surrounded by little animals and holding a peacock feather, um, which is by this point the sort of emblem of a previous era, the sort of era of Oscar Wilde's and aestheticism. Uh, this is painted in 1920, but you wouldn't guess it to look at it. This, and I think that the style of the painting and the sort of archaic feel of it really sort of connects back to their own tastes, which are not for the modern. Their, their tastes are more for the sort of world of um, William Morris. It's a very beautiful object. Um, it's also a very strange object. Um, and as I say, it's an object that doesn't fall within easy categories. Um, and I think things like this um, the rubric queer allows us to unpack, whereas if we were just looking for sort of identifiable subjects, um, we might you know, shy away from it or, or try to impose onto it um, greater definitions. It's not that object, however, that you're confronted with as you enter the exhibition, and this is a sort of view from the door as you um, step in. Um, one of the first objects that you, one of the first stories that you see is that of Simeon Solomon, but I'll come to you later, which is on the sort of this wall as you enter. Lots of rev uh, lots of evidence shows for visitors when they go into exhibitions turn this way. Um, uh, it's next to the panel. Um, professionals tip. <laughs> but the object that of course confronts you is um, Leighton's the sluggard, um, and this is a similarly sort of object around which lots of queer discourses cluster. Leighton's own sexuality, as I'm sure you will know, is again ambiguous, hard to pin down. There's lots of evidence of um, holidays to questionable destinations, um, and Leighton is certainly somebody who enjoys a very fluid public persona. There's lots of speculation about Leighton within his own lifetime. But I think he's certainly somebody who is engaging with a variety of queer themes um, in his work, which is, of course, you know, situated squarely within the sort of discourse of British aestheticism. Um, this is the image of uh, the sluggard. Um, and the pose that um, the figure is falling into emulates somebody whose own sexuality has been questioned in this period. Um, Michelangelo's dying slave. Now the story that Leighton tells about this is that his model is in the studio and just happens to fall into this classical pose. Maybe, maybe not. But Michelangelo is an interesting figure to be looking back to at this time. Um, this is a period in which Michelangelo's sonnets, um, it's 
becoming better known in England that they are originally addressed to a man rather than to a woman. Um, in the originals of English translations, all the gender pronouns get flipped to try and sort of give the text a veneer of greater respectability. And Michelangelo, in the wider context of the Renaissance, um, is starting to become one of these touchstones um, <coughs> of queer culture. A touchstone that is seen as um, more liberal, more um, a sort of rejection of medievalism um, and medievalism's you know, rejection of the body with all of its desires and instead kind of a way of embracing um, uh, man at the centre of things. Um, Walt Pater's Studies in the History of Renaissance um, is another text around which lots of queer readings cluster, um, particularly um, its conclusion, which, of which, which carries the most famous phrase connected to the aesthetic movement, art for art's sake. Um, and I think that, I mean, Leighton's, um, Leighton's stretching figure can very much be seen as of embodying some of these values, um, these values of, around not being ashamed and about sort of embracing um, the body. Um, it's also a figure which offers a very different sort of approach to masculinity than another statue from Leighton, an athlete wrestling with a python. Now there are also queer readings of this sculpture um, based around you know, that very phallic python. But whereas the athlete wrestling with a python embodies this kind of muscular form of masculinity, which is very much sort of directed towards um, sort of supporting the nation through, through you know, controlled work and controlled movement. Um, <coughs> Sluggard, originally um, called an athlete waking from sleep, although never known by that title, seems to embody the sort of dangerous beauties of aestheticism. Unlike the his python-wielding counterpart, um, the, sluggard is the sluggard's movements are involuntary. He's um, stretching as he sort of throws off the last vestiges of sleep. And as he does so, he tramples on the victor's laurel crown um, beneath his feet. The sign of achievement. Um, and I, I think that, that sort of, what's really interesting about that is that not only is he doing something which could be considered questionable in the sort of 19th century um, framework of masculinity, um, but although he is a sluggard, he's still incredibly buff. Um, this is, you know, an incredibly beautiful figure, and we're really encouraged as the viewer to be delighting in that beauty, even as that beauty is engaged in this kind of questionable involuntary action. This figure, I think, there is also one further sort of queer discourse that you can bring into play around this figure, and that is the subsequent accretions of queer readings through audience. Um, Leighton's, I mean, the sluggard in Leighton's time is celebrated um, as you know this wonderful example of sculpture. I mean, some of the reviews draw attention to the fact that. Um, they would have expected the sluggard to be a fat man, but on the whole, um, the British press is very positive about it. But the homoerotic <coughs> potential of the figure certainly doesn't escape subsequent generations. 
And of course, one of the most famous engagements with the sluggard is that Maplethorpe. Maplethorpe has a little uh, version of the sluggard in his studio. And it appears in several photographs. Um, the sluggard smoke, and there we have just the sluggard where he's put a sort of classical backdrop behind it. Um, I think the power of this object to kind of um, speak to a queer audience or to speak to an audience or, or to be taken to the heart of the queer audience um, is a reading that it's you know, hardest as a curator to be foregrounding in a gallery space, but which is an important aspect of this exhibition. This is not just an exhibition that is about artistic intention. It's also, um, as we'll see with other images, I think, um, an exhibition about objects where an audience has seen something in it that either causes them to throw up their hands in horror, um, in many cases, or, as in the case of the sluggard, to take that object to their hearts and to see something in it that reflects their own identity. And just for fun, and just to show you that it's not just Maplethorpe who's exploring this, here's Stuart Sandford's The Sluggard, which is you know, based on a 3D model of Brad, life-size private commission. Um, you know, I think objects like this um, help us see the power of some of these sort of icons. So take you back to the 19th century. And queer readings abound through the show um, at different times. Queer readings for present, but also queer readings for past. This is Walter Crane's The Renaissance of Venus. And it's in the show actually because of Leighton's reaction to it. When it's first exhibited at the Gravesner Gallery, um, Leighton stands in front of it and says to Graham Robertson, um, but my dear fellow, that's not Aphrodite, that's Alessandro. Because the model who Walter Crane has used for Venus is Alessandro de Marco, one of the most successful male models of the period. Now, Graham Robertson, who's telling this story in his memoirs, um, says that the reason why Crane has used the male model is because Mrs. Crane um, isn't happy with the idea of um, Walter Crane painting uh, nude women. Um, this may be true. I mean, there is, given that the title of it, the painting is the, is the Renaissance of Venus, I think there's also, you could see this sort of gender swap through um, the sort of lens of uh, Walter Pater's studies on, on the Renaissance, um, where there's in, the, in the essay on Winkelmann, there's a passage which talks about uh, the hermaphrodite as the kind of ideal form combining the best, um, the best elements of both male and female. So, I mean, there is also sort of some sort of possible precedent there for this kind of gender swapping. Um, but what I think is really interesting is that Robertson clearly enjoys the sort of fluid potential uh, that this swap opens up. In the diary passage, it continues. Still, she was a fine slip of a boy, and in the warm Italian sunlight, she passed for Venus well enough. The idea of sort of passing for Venus in the warm Italian sunlight, of course, evokes the spectre of von Glurden and, you know, the practice of sort of visiting sort of places like Sicily and encounters with local youths. But it's interesting too that, you know, how easily 
Robertson slips between these pronouns and slips between these positions. And it's clearly you know, just having fun with the ideas around the painting. Now, all of this takes us a long way away from Crane's intentions for the image. Um, but I think it really foregrounds the fact that the practice of reading queerly is not a not modern phenomenon. It's a phenomenon which has its own history. Um, and which, when telling the story, it's a history that you ignore at your peril. Of course, there are some figures who are easier to pin down. Um, this is, of course, Simeon Solomon's The Bride, the Bridegroom, and Sad Love. Um, here, the figure of the bridegroom gently disentangles his hand from that of sad love to embrace his new bride. And it's a relationship that sets up um, a sort of narrative uh, for the viewer that, you know, look at that positioning of those hands. There's a strong suggestion here that the bridegroom and sad love have formerly been lovers and the reason for love's sadness is watching his lover pass into the respectability of a heterosexual union. Um, an experience which, of course, was the lot of many men in the same-sex relationships in this period. Um, Solomon, of course, as I mentioned, is more easier to pin down because he gets caught. Um, he is caught um, having sex with a man in a public toilet. Um, this causes... That was a great moment to enter the room. <laughs> this causes a very public downfall. Um, he's abandoned by a lot of his previous contacts, including um, Swinburne, whose own tastes um, were um, eclectic. Um, and really, a small group of friends like Burn Jones stand by him, but there's a huge sort of psychic shock that comes out of um, this experience. Um, it's for these reasons for, for why his story is one of the first that we tell in the show. I think it helps people to sort of realise that it's not all going to be sort of these fuzzy queer readings. There are, we can actually bring this down to bodies having sex with other bodies at different points. But I think that what's so fascinating about Solomon is that he's exploring his desires so explicitly in his work. Um, not all of his works. There's other works which certainly at the time people are seeing is very morally questionable or, you know, there's an audience reaction to it. But I mean, I think these are harder to, these readings are harder to make present for the modern viewer. Uh, this is his wonderful Bacchus um, with his sort of cherry red lips, um, which is you know, one of Walter Pater's favorite of um, Solomon's works. Um, to an educated 19th century audience, this is very much inhabiting this sort of ambiguous sexual universe. Bacchus is a, a god who is very associated with sexual ambiguity. Um, in literature, um, and you know the sort of sensuality of the painting, I think, really sort of speaks to them. The sort of reviews of it when it's first shown, saying that you know this is not the Bacchus of sort of strong wine, but the Bacchus who you, know, you can <coughs> at most imagine sort of sipping honey water. Um, and you know, but it's not clear quite where these accusations are coming down. Is this about alternative forms of masculinity, or is this about particular sexual acts? It's only when Solomon gets caught that the work starts to be seen in this completely different light. I mean, Bacchus brings to mind the fact that we have another major touchstone <coughs> for queer culture in this period. The Renaissance is certainly one, um, but the other is the, the classical world of ancient Greece. 
Um, and you know, one of the key figures here is John Allington Simmons himself, who I mentioned in that early anecdote. Um, his essay on Greek ethics um, is one of the sort of first attempts to try a problem in Greek ethics. It's one of the first attempts to try and sort of plot out a history for male same-sex desire. Um, and this is a history which is very far removed from sort of what we would sort of see as sort of modern gay identities. Um, he's looking at texts like Plato's Symposium um, and Phaedrus, and he's really kind of drawing attention to the fact that in these texts, um, relationships that had been seen by a lot of his, uh, a lot of 19th century people as a sort of epitome of male friendship uh, between an older man and a younger sort of beardless youth, are in fact um, have an erotic component in the original texts. Um, and these relationships, I think, are, are one of the other sort of big tropes of the period. Um, this is Leighton's Daedalus and Icarus. Um, and it's in the exhibition because of an early review um, from the Times, which remarks incredibly anxiously that you can see a maiden's breast in Icarus's pectoral muscles. Now, standing in front of a painting, it's quite hard to see that. And it does make you sort of slightly wonder about, you know, what the Times reviewer is thinking about. But I'm pretty sure that what the Times reviewer is thinking about is this idea of the ephematons, the beardless youth from Plato, whose, you know, key features are the sort of, you know, his maidenly qualities. Um, and, you know, it's possible that Leighton is also thinking about this in putting together these pairings, which you know really invite you to sort of um, again enjoy the beauties of the male form that is on display. I mean, look at this drapery, which is sort of about to fall off at any minute. This is another work by Leighton, um, David's Token to Jonathan, um, and here you know a couple which is often used as a sort of um, uh, code for male same-sex desire in this period um, because of the description in the Bible about how you know, closely knit they are to each other, their love for each other. Um, you know, the, the ages that Leighton has given them, the you know, respective ages in the painting, bring them very much within this kind of platonic model. Um, and this is, of course, painted the sort of year before um, Davis and Icarus. Tying into that model too, there is von Blurden's um, photographs of beautiful Sicilian boys. Now this is one of the hardest stories to tell in a museum as a curator, because it's incredibly problematic um, from our perspective. Von Blurden um, moves to Sicily, he's incredibly wealthy, um, he pays local youths to pose for him, he probably is also paying them for sex, there are wild parties at his house, um, he later pays their dowries and sets them up in business. Um, but it's very hard not to see these relationships through the sort of lens of, you know, ideas around sex tourism. Um, and, you know, von Glurden's house is a sort of um, magnet uh, for lots of, um, lots of men in same-sex relationships in this period. Uh, people like Oscar Wilde go and visit him. Um, interestingly, von Glurden has um, a sort of community of um, British viewers. Uh, there's a wonderful story about, oh god, I'm going to forget who it is now. 
It's about it's George Meredith at my side. It's Edmund Goss. Goes to uh, Edmund Goss goes to Robert Browning's funeral. And he says how, you know, with George Meredith at his side, he has this packet of photos, and I could scarce forbear to peep at it now and then. Now, he's writing to John Arlington Simmons, and there's, again, this network um, where these photographs are serving as objects which are binding together um, a community of viewers um, who share similar interests. And in that context, I think something like Daedalus and Icarus, um, you know, becomes... It takes on this whole sort of these whole new meanings, and I think you know suddenly that Times viewer who is expressing his anxiety about the forms of masculinity depicted in the painting, um, his review starts to make perfect sense. There are of course works around which you know it's hardest to sort of pin down. Um, I really really wanted to have this work in the show because I think it's absolutely fascinating. Um, William Blake Richmond's The Bowlers, when it's first exhibited, um, causes absolute consternation. Um, Lady Frederick Cavendish, in one of my favourite quotes about any work in the show, um, describes the painting as depicting ancients playing bowls with nothing on, of which I cannot approve. <laughs> um, what's fascinating is that those reactions turn on the heterosexual possibilities in the paintings rather than its queer potential. Um, there's uh, absolute consternation that these scantily clad ladies are depicted in the same painting as scantily clad men. However, I mean, it doesn't take a huge leap to see that the men and the women do not seem that interested in each other. I mean, to modernise, this feels fantastically queer. Um, these poses, some of which are taken from classical sculpture, like um, Catherine Pollock's of the Scobulus, um, you know... <laughs> To us, it, it's kind of almost impossible not to see the sexual possibilities that they open up. Um, and this division, too, of the painting into these two zones, the ladies on one side, the gents on the other, um, divided by the mysterious tree, which is probably William Blake Richmond's attempt to kind of introduce and inject a note of propriety into what would otherwise be such an improper painting. Um, I think just serves to sort of heighten <laughs> this um, homoerotic charge to the painting. Um, things are seldom what they seem, but I mean, I think William Blake Richmond um, must have known to some extent that in depicting classical figures in such suggestive poses, um, it seems impossible that he, he was completely unaware that there was something going on. But maybe he wasn't. We just don't know. Referring to the women in this painting, stories about female experience are some of the hardest to uncover if you're using a, doing an exhibition that is just focused on the visual arts. We all know that you know, women have not perhaps flourished so much um, in this period, and when you have fewer artists to choose from, there's you know, a, fewer range, a smaller range of sexualities on offer. This is one of the sort of most ambiguous and, for me, most intriguing works in the show. Um, it's by Evelyn de Morgan, and it's Aurora Triumphant. Um, here we have the goddess of dawn, Aurora, gently plucking off the bonds of night, who is shown as an unquestionably female figure, departing this swirl of drapery on this side of the painting. Um, I mean, that in itself, carries a certain erotic charge. Uh, what exactly has been going on between these figures, we might be tempted to ask. 
Um, but it's in the exhibition, more importantly, because of de Morgan's relationship with Jane Hales, who is the model um, for Aurora. This is a relationship around which there is much speculation. <laughs> um, de Morgan, um, Jane enters de Morgan's household to be nursemaid uh, for de Morgan's sister uh, when Evelyn and Jane are both teenagers. Um, she remains part of the household, um, including after de Morgan's marriage, William de Morgan. Um, and Evelyn paints her again and again and again and again and again, often nude, often tied up in some way, sometimes in incredibly ecstatic poses. I didn't bring it with me, but there's an amazing one of her as a moon with her sort of hands behind her and her head thrown back. Um, these are images that carry an extraordinary erotic charge. Um, we don't know what the relationship between Jane and Evelyn was. Is this the relationship of artist and muse? Um, is this an erotic friendship? Or is this something more? Is this a relationship that was sexually um, expressed? And one of the things that was so fascinating to me in putting the exhibition together is, was you know, reading the work of people like Sharon Marcus and their studies of the fact that if this was a sexual relationship, it's not without precedent in this period. There are other relationships between women um, where one woman is married um, which were either tolerated or to some extent condoned by the family. Um, was this one of those? We don't know. We do know that Jane is buried in a plot next to Evelyn and her husband. Um, and when she dies, there's photographs of her funeral um, and the coffin is absolutely smothered in flowers. We also know that a lot of papers uh, that connected to Evelyn were destroyed um, by Mrs Sterling. Um, but beyond that, um, it's up to us to decide which, you know, where we would situate it. And because I love playing for my audience, um, one of the things we also wanted to foreground is that identities are much more varied in this period than you might otherwise suspect. And no one has more varied identity than the owners of this fan, the wonderful Michael Field. Michael Field was born Edith Cooper and Catherine Bradley. Um, shockingly to our eyes, they are aunt and niece. Um, perhaps more shockingly at the time, they're also, of course, lovers. Um, they publish a verse that includes incredibly erotic passages. Um, they publish verse on the name Michael Field. And they seem to be largely sort of identified as a couple. You know, friends refer to them as the Michael Fields. Um, and what is wonderful about this object is it's one of the objects that foregrounds that identity. Um, this was designed for them by Ricketts, who's one of their friends. Um, it connects to a long sort of poem cycle they do about um, the uh, myth of um, Cupid and Psyche. Um, and this is sort of the marriage at the end. Uh, but it's here partly because it's inscribed um, on one side of the fan, um, Ricketts has added the inscription to end field. So this is an object that absolutely connects to that incredibly complex identity. Uh, it's a complex identity because it is so fluid. 
Um, sometimes one of them is Michael, um, sometimes the other one is Field. Um, they sometimes use, um, they don't use, a single male pseudonym, uh, sorry, single male pronoun to refer to both of them. Um, this is an identity which they seem to be sort of very much living out together through their journal. Um, and they also refer to themselves as closer married um, than Elizabeth Barrett Browning and Robert Browning, who are generally held up as, you know, examples of sort of, you know, strong and enduring marriage. Um, they say that they're closer married than the Brownings because unlike the Brownings, they write together and they edit each other's work. Um, I think it's really interesting that this is an identity which sits between sort of gender binaries, sexuality, but also professional authorship in a really complex way. Um, and it, it, it's really nice to be able to, alongside sort of well-known stories from the past, like that of Oscar Wilde, to be able to foreground these less well-known identities. Um, I mentioned that we had several objects related to the show, um, just to show you some of them. Uh, this is a locket um, that is designed um, for, for Bradley with Cooper's miniature in it, I think, yes. Um, yes. No, yeah, that's the right way around. I always get it wrong. And then, mm. um, but again, on the locket, here we have MF. For Michael Field, it's not, um, it, you know, and you know, does it, it, it's just so embedded in not just their relationship, but also in this relationship with Ricketts. But um, and you know, we were talking before we started. Um, you know, here is you know a ring that he makes for them, which connects to the sabotai ring, which connects to one of their plays, um, and which is designed to appeal to all five senses. It was really fun installing this because it's got a loose emerald inside it that rattles uh, when you move it. Um, and it was originally designed to be sort of smeared with ambergris um, that would let off this incredible perfume. And I think it's interesting being able to foreground these sorts of stories because they're not what we expect from the past. They're stories that connect friendship to queer identity, uh, to sexuality, to gender identity. Um, as I say, in this really sort of complex way. How am I doing for time, by the way? Do you tell me if I'm fine? Yeah. Okay. Um, thinking about some complex relationships, this is the one for um, Cup by um, Charles Ashby, um, which is inscribed on it um, to the ancient from CRA on the mournful occasion of his transition into matrimony. It's present that Ashby makes for one of his friends, um, James Hedlam. Um, and I think it's, it's no accident um, that the shape of the stem of the cup and these very drooping handles um, from certain angles takes on this sort of really phallic appearance. Um, interestingly, Ashby um, makes sort of another version of the cup, uh, which is exhibited at a sort of big arts and crafts fair. Um, but that version, he's altered the design so that these phallic effects are lost. Ashby, you might expect from this, was one of these people around whom books used to euphemistically say he never married. Uh, not a bit of it. Ashby actually makes his own transition into matrimony a few years later. But being a very principled soul, before he does so, um, he speaks to his future wife about his desires, um, Janet Ford, and he says to her, Hitherto, 
I have only loved men. Um, and some women might shrink from a man who declared himself thus. But, says Ashby, don't worry. Um, there will be many future, many comrade friends, which is his term for his male lovers. However, there can only be one comrade wife. Um, and Mrs. Ashby accepts him on these terms. Um, their marriage does seem to have been quite happy. Um, she also writes about it. I mean, she does say in her journal that she finds it um, sad that he's not more into her, uh, to put it mildly. I mean, Ashley <coughs> writes things like his, his sexual memoirs, um, which only fragments of which survive, but they're all about sort of going up to London and seducing guardsmen. Uh, but, I mean, she says, you know, on balance, you know, he, he, he's a genius, he, he's a loving father, he's, you know, um, a generous husband, and, you know, it could be a lot worse. And I think that's actually another thing which is one of these sort of surprising facets of the queer past. But I think it's very easy to assume that all of the marriages were unhappy and that, um, or dishonest. Um, I think Ashby's story is really interesting for foregrounding a sort of alternative to those kinds of narratives. Um, an affair of class. Um, what your experience is, how well you succeed, um, the sorts of sort of games of um, reference that are available to sort of Ashby and his friends are not perhaps available to throughout you know, the whole of society. Um, these are some of the hardest, th this aspect of queer experience is some of the hardest things to, to, to explain in an exhibition for the, looking at the 19th century period. Later on, there's more stories um, that I can sort of pull out that starts to be exploring those themes. But there are a couple of objects. Um, and one of them is Hamo Fornicroft's uh, The Mower, um, which is absolutely an object which sort of ties into this sort of fetishization of um, the working class body. It's at the centre of a sort of interesting sort of triangle of relationships, and I should really foreground for I'm incredibly grateful to Michael Hatt um, for um, sharing a lot of his research around the mower with me. So everything I have to say will be a bastardisation of his incredibly elegant account of this sculpture. Do read his essay near and far if you're interested in these themes. It's absolutely brilliant. Um, the, the mower is an object that recalls. Um, a trip that Fornigroff takes down the Thames together with a man, a group of friends, including a man who is in love with him, Edward Goss, Edmund Goss, the writer, popping up again in this context. Um, and Goss writes very beautiful letters to Fornicroft, but there's no sign that that relationship is ever acquainted. Um, although there equally isn't a sign that, you know, Fornicroft is sort of recoiling in horror um, from Goss's protestations of love. What's interesting, though, is that this, when this sculpture is first exhibited, um, Goss includes with it um, verses um, from Matthew Arnold's uh, Phrasis, um, which um, talks about the Thames um, and the figure of the mower. Um, and this connects very much to a poem which um, Goss writes shortly after Fornicroft's marriage um, called The Shepherd of the Thames, 
um, which offers a sort of homoerotic reading of, of Matthew Arnold. Um, so the object is therefore this sort of really interesting kind of triangle um, between A, who is in love with B, they're both, but B doesn't love A, and they're both observing this sort of very beautiful um, mower. That's one reading of the object. Another reading, though, is about you know, this fascination with working class bodies. This is often cited as a sort of first example in British sculpture of a man um, wearing a sort of labouring dress. And clearly, to some of Fulicroft's audience, um, this is quite erotic. Um, again, I'm really grateful to Michael Hatt for this. Michael Hatt directed my attention to one of the poems in John Gamble Nicholson's suggestively titled A Garland of Lads Love, um, which is definitely a book which you feel you need to take a shower after reading. Um, it's, it's very questionable. <laughs> but one of the poems in that book is called In, in Working Club, In, in Labouring Dress, um, which very explicitly fetishises um, the working dress of a labourer uh, and the description in the poem almost exactly sort of correlates um, to the statue. I mentioned that it's hard to find working class stories. This is pretty much the only one that I managed to find sort of visual material for from this period, which is the fantastic Fanny and Stella. Um, one of the only ways in which these sort of stories um, become part of the visual record is due to sort of trials and cause celeb. Um, and Fanny and Stella are at the centre of one of these. They are arrested for soliciting, um, dressed looking a bit like this. They're taken back to the police station when they are stripped. And it's discovered that um, they were born Ernest Bolton and Frederick Parks. Um, they then put on trial for um, trying to incite sodomy. Uh, the trial is full of, you know, accounts from servants of, you know, rumpled bedsheets, suspicious stains, um, letters keep getting produced. Um, what complicates matters too is that Stella has, for the previous few years, um, been living as somebody's wife. Um, so, you, you know, you think that this is a pretty cast-iron case from the state. Um, but, um, very sensibly, they grow moustaches um, and manage to pass the whole thing off as a sort of boyish lark um, and are acquitted to cheers from the gallery. Um, and they then find a sort of new, turn this sort of this newfound celebrity um, into a career with Stella um, uh, touring the country as a female impersonator, one of the sort of you know, well-known acts on the British stage. Um, I think it's a really sort of joyous story about, as I say, connecting um, the, the dots between um, <laughs> these sort of theatrical gender swaps, which are certainly at the time seems very respectable, um, but actual lived experience. And, I mean, one of the sort of hinges on which I think this kind of fluid world that allows sort of Stella and um, Fanny to get off and you know, the world of sort of you know, ambiguous queer readings and um, is of course um, Havelock Ellis's um, book on sexual inversion. Um, I should say though that it's not a thunderclap. It's not the fact that you know, sexual inversion comes out and suddenly everyone wakes up the next day and says, I'm a X. 
Um, you know, the transmission of this text is very slow. Um, it really inspires some people. Other people haven't heard of it, couldn't care less about it, and are still inhabiting um, these very fluid identities well into the 20th century. Um, but it is important. Um, and this portrait of Havelock Ellis um, was painted by Henry Bishop, um, an artist who was himself attracted to men. And you know, we think that that's one of the reasons why um, uh, he made, made friends with Ellis and painted this portrait. Um, alongside Ellis, you have people like the amazing Edward Carpenter. Um, it's actually Carpenter who helps Ashby to come to terms with his um, love of men. Um, Ashby hears Carpenter lecture, um, and it really um, helps him. Uh, Carpenter lives with his lover, <coughs> Merrill, um, another example of the sort of uh, fetishization of working class bodies. Um, but it's a, you know, it's very genuine and very loving, it's also a very genuine and very loving relationship. Um, um, and I think Carpenter, and you know, this very happy story about him living in sort of domestic bliss, you know, visitors report on Merrill sitting in the corner darning Carpenter's socks. Um, I think Carpenter offers a very important counterweight to um, another, you know, probably best known story that we have to tell in the exhibition, which is, of course, that of Oscar Wilde. Um, one of the things that I really wanted to do with the show is to both acknowledge the complexity, the diversity, and the fluidity of experiences across this period. But it's also, of course, important to um, remember the tragedy that the tragedy that engulfed Simeon Solomon, with whom I started, but also the tragedy that engulfs Oscar Wilde. Um, this portrait by Harper Pennington was one of our great coups in putting the show together. It had never been exhibited in Britain before, um, and it's one of only two artworks that have been traced from Oscar Wilde's extensive art collection. Um, Pennington made it as a wedding present to, for Oscar and for his wife Constance, and it hung in their rooms at Tite Street, um, so, you know, obviously a very sort of key location. Um, and it shows Wilde as a sort of young man on the cusp of success um, in this sort of very sort of swaggering pose uh, taken from Van Dyck. We've paired it in the exhibition with another object, uh, this beaten up door, which is the door of Wilde's jail cell uh, at Reading Prison. And for me, representing these objects together uh, packs an emotional punch and brings home the sort of truths of Wilde's story um, to an extent that it's kind of not possible to do in any other way. Um, one of the things that I think is sort of so telling or so, so, so problematic about Wild Story, if you're a curator, is almost every image that is connected to it is unbelievably familiar with people. There's a reason why Wild Story is so well known. So to make audiences think again, to bring people up short, and to force them to actually think about what happened, um, strategies like this can be very helpful. Um, one of the things that's been very moving is in the last room of the exhibition, we have a space where visitors can leave comments. And so, some comments said, you know, I was in tears in front of the door, um, which has been incredibly, you know, humbling for me as a curator to read. It's perhaps, you know, a bit of a cheap shot and a bit of a cliche um, in terms of, like, you know, setting up this drama. 
But, I mean, what's fascinating about the portrait is that it is also connected to the story of tragedy. Um, the portrait is actually purchased at the auction of Wilde's effects by Ada Leveson, um, one of Wilde's friends. Um, and Wilde rather acidly remarks that, of course, the problem is the Levisons can't hang the image in their house, um, lest it be corrupting to young men. Or, he says, to young women of advanced views. <laughs> Um, it's a really wonderful story, um, and it sort of serves as a counterweight to some of the other images we have which connect to Wilde's story in the exhibition, which is, of course, the famous photograph of um, Wilde and Bosey, but also this object which sort of bridges the gap between um, portrait and door, which is the calling card uh, that the Marquis of Queensbury leaves at Wilde's club um, to Oscar Wilde, posing as a Sondermite, um, famously misspelled. I mean, I'm ending with sort of one of the best known stories from this period. But I think coming at it through Michael Field, Frederick Layton, all of these sort of predecessors and all of these sort of previous you know, ambiguous, fascinating, complex objects that we've been looking at, I think really kind of you start to see it afresh. Instead of seeing this as the only form of queer experience from the 19th century, which is, you know, still what I think a lot of, it's, you know, a lot of people think, um, it, it becomes just one experience that can be set alongside the ambiguous partnership of Ricketts and Shannon, um, the complex gender identities surrounding Michael Fields, um, Ashby's joy in um, exploring. Um, uh, the sort of um, contradictions of moving into a heterosexual marriage through that sort of phallic cup. The exhibition isn't perfect. There's stories and perspectives which we would have genuinely loved to include. We're aware too, of course, that there is a lot of material that has been destroyed. Most famously, of course, or perhaps most famously to us, John Addington Simmons' um, papers, which uh, were destroyed by Edmund Goss. Interestingly, when Goss tells um, Simmons, I think it's his, his niece, um, granddaughter, but it must be granddaughter, about it, um, she said remarks that she could have hit him, um, so nauseated did she feel at this destruction. So, I mean, often people in the past don't react quite the way that you are perhaps expecting. Um, but I think what for me is so exciting about this is being able to bring all of these experiences back into the museum space. We are pretty much the first, well, we're certainly the first exhibition to tell this story uh, for British art. Um, we're one of the first worldwide to use the word queer in our title. Um, and certainly we're you know, the first in Britain to be em embracing that term and embracing all of the different sort of fluid, complex, interesting experiences um, that it can encapsulate. Um, and so, although for me the show will always be incomplete and there will always be more material that I'm hoping people are going to dig up um, and you know, find in forgotten attics, um, stashed in garages up and down the country, um, that's always the hope, um, I am pleased with what the show is trying to do. Um, obviously you're not seeing the full run of it here, this is just part of it, 
But I think it does give you a flavour of some of the amazing possibilities um, that cracking open this narrative um, can unlock for us. Thank you very much.